This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Now, to briefly recap the previous material, is everyone who's here now was at least the last one or the one before that, one of the last two sessions? Okay, there's a few who haven't, okay. In the last couple of sessions, we were looking at the big picture philosophy of why we need training center churches. And we looked at the ministry of Christ, first of all, as the leader of the heavenly host. He, uh, he delegated many of his duties, especially uh, ministering to other people, and we don't have time to go into that, but we saw that. We also saw that when he was here on earth, he brought that same model of ministry to the New Testament church, and I should say, I don't remember where it is in here or if we get into it, um, I believe it's, either way, if we haven't gotten to it and it is in here, I'll spoil the thing right now, but this was the Old Testament, yeah, please do, they've already been passed out, so just any newcomers can get one, that would be great, thank you. Um, God has always operated through organization with the goal to bid every member to be a missionary, everyone being a disciple maker, not just a follower, but a doer, a worker, not a watcher. So now we saw in Adventist church history in our last episode how that was the original building block model and helped our church to grow faster, but a church has emerged, that's the real emerging church, that is pastor-centered. Instead of lay member doing the ministry, it's everything is about the pastor. So what would it look like, as we transition now to more practical things, what would it look like for a church to operate under some of these training center church principles, where the minister's primary job is education, equipping, and training, and, and organizing the work, and the member's job is to fill those roles that we typically think is pastoral. What would that look like? And that's kind of where we're headed now in the first of two sessions called Soul Winning DNA, how to take these concepts of soul winning and infuse them into the very fiber of who we are in a local church and as individuals. But uh, as other people come in, I want to let you know we do have, come up wherever you are, we do have handouts ready to go, but we're going to be, uh, or maybe they're in the back, something here. Okay, there's some here, there's some there, but there's handouts available for everyone. Come on in, and uh, we're going to start with a word of prayer, and then after our just brief review we just did, we're going to be off to the races. So if you would, let's just bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you again so much for the opportunity to visit together. Thank you for this GYC occasion that brings us here. And now as we continue to study your word and the principles and practices that you've instructed for us, help us to truly, truly follow your instruction and, and see the results that only your spirit can lead to. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's, as we should with everything, start with a Bible study. Take out your Bibles, and I know that they're in the notes I don't just list the text, I give some of those things, but oftentimes we'll give more context than what I have room to put in there. So these are just the notes that you have in your hand are good for helping you follow along the flow of thought to take them home and to remember. But when we look at something or any other thought, please have a, your own Bible out and you have your own pencils and papers ready to go. But let's go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his earthly ministry uh, by going to the home church of Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, and we read, 
we find the story of that Sabbath morning when Jesus came home. And we'll start with verse 16. Again, that's not in your notes, but we're just broadening it out a little bit. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now, the way that's written is interesting to me in the fact that he, it was his custom to go to church on Sabbath, but it also says that he stood up to read. So was that part of his custom too? That he was involved with church even before he was the, you know, the public Messiah figure, was he, that was just part of his thing. He always went to church and always had something to do, so was, he was coming to read. And it says in verse 17, And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, and of course this book is not codex like we understand it, it was a scroll, yes? Right? When he had opened the book, so, not to get too nitpicky, was the book open when it was handed to him? No. He was simply handed the scroll in its entirety, and he opened the book. Now, I don't know if there's an assigned reading for the day, but look what happens here. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. It certainly gives you the sense that he's looking for a very specific passage. He's the one who opens it up. He finds the thing, and he's like, ah, wait a minute. And on a scroll, that would take a minute, you know? You don't have chapter and verse and stuff. You're like, hang on just a second. Mm, yeah, yeah, there it is. And now he's ready to read. So what was he looking for? Verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So clearly Christ has identified himself with this prophecy. He was the one who looked for it. He's the one who found it. He read it. And then when he was done, he said, This is me right here today. I'm the fulfillment of this. Okay? So this is where Christ understood from the Bible his mission statement to be for his work on the earth. Now, let's go back to Isaiah 61. It's a very, hey, thank you so much. Whoa, this is the color ones. You guys felt guilty about being late and you did the color thing. That's very. If you want, we have some of the ones with the color chart. Ooh, thank you, GYC. That is well done. Well done. If you'd like to, you know, I should say, here they are, and just stick them under the thing. Good luck. Let's go back to the Old Testament now, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, and let's find in our Bibles what Christ found in his. And you see right off the bat, he started with verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he sent me to heal the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison, blah, blah, blah. Now, and it goes on to say, to comfort all who mourn, to console those, and it gives a more, this is where you have that, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for more. This is, we're very familiar with this, but I want you to draw your attention to the last closing line of Isaiah 61, verse 11. 
the last verse as we would have it in our Bibles. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So how is the Lord God going to cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations? Well, he says, it's like a garden. As the seed goes in, it will be growing and planting. In this garden harvest metaphor is right there in Christ's mission statement that he himself said, I am doing this in front of you today. Okay? So it's little wonder that Christ repeatedly compared the spreading of the gospel to the world, the work of soul winning, to agriculture. It's right there in his mission statement as he understood it. It's going to work like a garden that causes things that are sown in it to spring forth, so God will cause righteousness to cover the earth, you know. Which brings us to this, the cycle of evangelism. The whole purpose of this one idea of this seminar is to get in your heads the cycle of evangelism that should be part of the DNA fabric of your church family, of your local church. Like Isaiah 61, Christ's use of the agricultural metaphor repeatedly emphasized the sequential nature of the work. This will lead to this, will lead to this. Again, Isaiah says, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth. So you have already, there's a picture of a field. You have the sowing of the seed, and it will bring forth things. And it's it's this metaphor, this mindset that Christ had in his ministry, he refers to that publicly all the time. That akin to agricultural production, evangelism is a process. It is not merely an event. Now, you hear this over and over. Well, you might hear about it, but our church is doing evangelism. That's great, but then they always add, next September. What do they mean by that? They mean there's a public evangelism campaign that's going to be held, and some individual is going to stand up and preach the gospel and preach the three angels' message and whatnot during three weeks in the fall. And the church members say, yes, did you do evangelism yesterday? Ah, we did evangelism last year. We had an evangelistic campaign. We had an event. We did evangelism, or we're planning to do evangelism. But evangelism is not an event. It's a process. Now, the public proclamation, the calls to repentance, the, the, all the things that go along with the public campaign are vital. They're important, but they are not in and of itself evangelism. It's just a part of the larger process. Okay? John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus explaining some of these principles. John chapter 4, starting with verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Notice these say, oh, there's a harvest is great, but what apparently had to go before that? Sowing. So it's great to gather in, but if you're going to have a harvest, it implies that there's some sowing and then cultivating, some gardening to go on before this. Okay? Um, for in this saying... 
Uh, for in this the saying is true, one sows and another does what? Reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. So he very clearly, if you see a harvest, it's because some work has gone on before that. There's sowing and work and labor that results in a harvest. And you certainly don't want to not have a harvest. You, you have all these ripe grain. You've got to gather them in. But evangelism is not harvest. Evangelism is the whole process, the whole cycle that will have harvest as a part of it. Right? I want to make sure we get the cart and the horse here correctly. Let's go to another passage here, the book of Luke. Luke chapter 8. Starting with verse 4. Again, we're looking at Christ's understanding of this cycle of evangelism as he tried to teach it. And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said, to these, said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, in this instance, he doesn't even mention the word harvest. But it's implied you have a crop that's a hundredfold, and what are you going to do with it? We're going to harvest them in, right? But here, his focus isn't on the harvest aspect. It's going all the way back to, back to the sowing of the seed. And I want to challenge you to see that it's not just the sowing of the seed he's talking about. What's his real concern? His issue isn't the seed. It's the soil, right? That we've got to work on the soil to make it good so the seed can come in and then be cultivated, and then it'll make a harvest, and then we'll reap. But Christ has this process of evangelism in mind. He wasn't just saying, do this one thing, and that's it. It's a process, over and over. Just as the agricultural cycle includes preparing the soil, planting seed, cultivating, harvesting, and this is where Adventist evangelism, I think, has fallen down a lot. We think that harvest is the last step. Preserving. What do you do with those people who are brought to the meetings and give their heart to Christ and make a commitment and get baptized? Now what? And most of our churches are like, well, you find your pew and you sit down, you know. That's what you, I don't understand the question. We don't have a picture in our mind of what active Seventh-day Adventist membership looks like. We certainly know what to say to them. Right? We're talking about closing the back door all the time. We need to preserve the crop that's harvested. Okay? So we need more harvesting. We need more preserving, but in order to get, we get more cultivating, more seed sowing, and more soil. We need all aspects of it, firing on all pistons. Okay? We need the whole cycle of evangelism. All right, still in Luke, then, Jesus explains what's going on here. Let's go down to verse 11 as we look at the first step of this cycle, which is soil preparation. Soil preparation. Luke chapter 8, verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the what? The word of God. Now, in the, if you recall the parable, it was just like 10 seconds ago we just talked about it. But the sower went out to sow. And what made the difference as to whether the seed 
took root and was good? Was it the technique of sowing that accomplished it? He didn't say, and some he threw over his shoulder, and some he threw behind his back, and some he did very, very little like this. No. The assumption of the parable, the implicit thought, is that this guy went and sowed the same way on every piece of ground, right? So, 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 so. It's not the technique of the sowing, and the, the seed is the same all around, too. It's not like some t- Rosie planted this seed. It's the same seed. And what is the seed? The Word of God. Okay? So, the same technique with the same message lands on different soil, and there has a different outcome. This is the purpose of this parable, to talk about soil. It's not about seed. It's about soil, right? And he says here, again, the seed is the Word of God, verse 12. Those, who, those by the wayside are the ones who hear... Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Do the first group of people believe at all? No. They were almost going to believe. They had potential to believe, but the devil snatches them out and turns their attention away, and they don't even get to belief. They don't strike root. They don't fruit at all. They're just out. But the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. So these start down the path, but they don't have endurance. They don't last. They don't really grow, and they flame out. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. So they might still be in the garden, but they're not doing anything, not maturing, not demonstrating any fruit. There's no harvest there. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Okay, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Oh, you know what I think would happen there? Is the color ones were for the next one. Am I right? Thank you. I already saw the problem and fixed it. I don't have to tell you ignore anything. Just thank this man. Okay. So, The difference, apparently, is the quality of the soil. So the first task, before we even get into sowing the seed, is do some soil samples. A lot of times, I think that we'll just pick indiscriminately, because, I mean, clearly the soil is a different talking about people's hearts and where they are and their receptiveness of the word, right? So we'll take the hardest, rocky soil, the most weed-infested person, and just keep throwing that word of God at them. And you say, evangelism doesn't work. Because I've tried with the same thing over and over and over. Well, you're just keeping throwing it on a rocky soil. Right? We have to kind of evaluate, is this actually a decent prospect? Should I spend most of my time? Yes, yeah, not to ignore the other one, but where is the most effective use of my time, energy, and resources going to be spent? We need people to work in those weed beds. We need people to till up that rocky soil, but for the most part, A, look for good soil that's already good to start with. Look for people who are receptive. Right? That's the first thing. And then how do we make more people receptive? How do we till the ground and loosen up and make some of the bad soil good? Soil preparation. Okay? How do we make people receptive to the message we have to hear? Adventist Home, page 145. As the garden must be prepared for the natural seed, so the heart must be prepared for the seed of truth. Okay. No one settles upon a raw piece of land with the expectation that it will at once yield a harvest. 
And you think about that. If you've never gardened before, you might make that mistake. You don't even till the soil at all. You're like, well, I'm going to do this thing. I got some seed. You throw it on the ground. And it doesn't do a thing. And you're like, they lied to me. It doesn't work. <laughs> no, but you're, you don't know what you're doing. That's the problem. The seed is fine. The ground is fine. They're just, they, they, you haven't met the, allowed them to meet properly yet, right? You've got to till the soil. You've got to plant the seed. Then you've got to, it takes a little care, right? And Mrs. White is clear about this. Before we start just indiscriminately planting seed, we could raise our, in, we could raise our odds of success by doing some soil prep first. No one, again, no one settles upon a raw piece of land with the expectation that it will at once yield a harvest. Diligent, persevering labor must be put forth in the preparation of the soil, the sowing of the seed, and the culture of the crop. So it must be in the spiritual sowing. Okay, so sowing has a lot to do with soil more than it has to do with seed first. Okay? Christ's Object Lessons, page 57. The sowers of the seed have a work to do in preparing hearts to receive the gospel. In the ministry of the word, there is too much sermonizing and too little of real heart-to-heart work. Mm. Too much sermonizing. Too little heart-to-heart work. And of course, the heart is the soil, right? Working with people, individually, retail. There is need of personal labor for the souls of the lost. In Christ-like sympathy... We should come close to men individually and seek to awaken their interest in the great things of eternal life. When you first meet them, they may not be interested. But that doesn't mean they can't be interested. They just, on their own, haven't gotten there yet. Apparently, you can be the tiller and start to cultivate that soil and give them a hunger for some seed that you can provide later. Right? But before you just indiscriminately just say, let me tell you about the mark of the beast, brother, and I'm not being sarcastic, or Sabbath truth, or even just the gospel itself. Assess where are they right now, and how could I make them more receptive? How could I make my sowing of the seed most effective in their personal experience? Do they have some sort of, I don't know, obstacle that might hinder their growth in the Lord right now? And maybe it's not the time for them to mark with the beast. Uh, this is going to be later on. I'm just going to give you a little piece of it there, but... There's a great little resource called uh, Testimonies to Southern Africa, if I'm not mistaken. And she's basically writing to a missionary who's going off to people who've never heard of a seventh Adventist in their life. And she's like, let me tell you what not to do. <laughs> Don't go up and be like, hi, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And you just <laughs> she's like, Don't do that. That's not to say hide it under a bushel. That's not what we're doing. But Prepare the ground so that when you do say that, it has some greater odds of catching root. Start with where they are. And this is where we come up with the most, one of the most famous Mrs. White passages. I believe it's Ministry of Healing 143. Am I right, Jared? Yep. yep. In fact, I bet you know that one better than I do. Could you recite that for us, please? I'm going to put you right on the spot, but I'm guessing you know it. Uh, it says, uh, Christ's method alone. Yes. Yes. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good, showed sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and, and won them confidence. Then he made them follow. follow me. Right? He mingled with people. Yeah, is there such a thing as the ministry of hanging out? People are like, well, I could do that. <laughs> I've been doing that ever since high school. Sure, I can do hanging out ministry. Now, 
don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that any hobby that you like to do, all of a sudden call it a ministry, because that really bugs me. It's like, no, I've been working on my golf ministry for like 20 years. That's not ministry. Do you understand what I'm saying? But getting to know them, just having conversation. Be interested in the things that they're already interested in, not just the things you want them to be interested in. And if they, if they have a garden at their home, I, all right, tell me about kale. I don't know, but that's what you're doing. That's your thing. Let me hear about it. Enter into their daily experience. You know, till the soil a little bit. Meet them where they are. Now, don't leave them there and don't just make it another social friend you have. You have an objective in mind, right? But you genuinely care about them. And that has a strength. That has an influence. You know what you're building? Influence. Influence. You know, sometimes you hear crazy things and you always have to hear, consider the source. Yeah? Especially in the Seventh Avenue, you can hear crazy things all the time. Conspiracy theories floating around every which way, you know. But when you say, like, who said that? Oh, well, they're crazy. Don't, you know, don't worry about that. Other people say, oh, that was legitimate. Maybe the same piece of information, but the source gives it more credibility, right? If you have an ongoing relationship with your neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members, and you've maybe been there through some of their good times and shared a good picnic with them, you know, their, their whatever their social thing, you know, or maybe whenever their poor dog got hit in my car, or maybe their kid was sick, or maybe if you've been there in those times, man, I'm telling you, once that gospel seed is sown, much higher odds of them being interested in giving it a second look because of the source. Right? That helps. You've prepared soil. A lot of Christ's ministry was going around preparing the soil. And, and of course, he did this through the medical missionary work. Why is it called, by the way, the medical work? Which I know that medical thinks, you think, well, well that's what Loma Linda's for. We, that's medicine, that's practice there, and I work in you know, a neighborhood, whatever. But medical is just doing the, just caring for other people, the work of beneficence, doing good for others. And it's called the right arm or the right hand. Why? Because it opens the door for the body of the gospel to go in. Now, some people take and, and end up making that's all we ever do is do this. Now, that's not the goal. But you can't just take off the arm and just start banging your body into the door. You know? The goal is to open doors and prepare soil so that when the seed comes in, it'll find fertile ground, right? This is the preparatory work. And there's, I'm telling you, there's, there's sermon after sermon after sermon that could be preached on that one part alone. Now, corporately as a church... And local churches, we end up doing a good deal of that. And the next, we're going to be reviewing these steps a little bit more in our next session. But this is where, there are a lot of good, if you think of what kind of soil events could you think of, well, we'll save it for then. But a lot of churches spend time doing this kind of thing, and that's good. We keep opening doors, but now we need to start walking through them. Right? We keep tilling the soil, but at some point, you've got to plant the seed. It's not one or the other. Uh, we have a soil tilling church. Well, that's good, but now what do you do with it? Right? It's all got to go, which moves us into our next thing. The purpose of soil preparation is to sow seed. You don't just, no farmer just tills and then tills some more and tills, yeah, I just love tilling up the ground. No, you got to do something with it, right? The purpose of soil preparation is to sow seed. In Christ's parable, the seed is the word of God. At some point, you have to sow some seed. A lot of people I know will get hung up on the first step and do friendship evangelism, which they mean 
I'm friendly with people, and that is my evangelism. No, it's not. You're preparing for the next phase of evangelism, but in the same way we think, no, 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 we're having Mark Finley come in, and and he's going to do evangelism. That's wrong. Neither is just tilling the soil all the time. That's not doing evangelism. The whole thing is evangelism, start to front, right? This is a part to play at it, and then you have to do the next thing. Let's say that you have that neighbor that's been... Whatever, you've shared these experiences, you've had this good time, and you've got this rapport built with them. At some point, you have to, with your face, with your eyes, with your mouth, sow some seed. Scariest thing in the world. Like, we've been good friends, and now I'm going to be their cult neighbor. You know? Now I'm going to be viewed as the one who... Ah, brought religion into it. It's like saying at some point you have to talk politics. Oh, I don't want to. No. And we're afraid of it. And I think a lot of people mean well and they just stay in the soil prep and they never actually sow seed. Okay? Now, too many people make the mistake of not sowing the seed of truth because they're afraid that it might do, they might do it poorly. And I'll be honest, I don't know what that noise is, but we're going to ignore it. Okay. <laughs> but think about it from the last, from the last seminar session. There's a chance they could do it poorly. (laughs) But at some point you have to, if you're going to fail, fail trying. Right? It's not going to be because, why didn't they hear the gospel? Well, I was afraid I'd do it wrong, so I didn't do it at all. Well, you're guaranteeing you'll do it wrong by not doing it. The other one, you're just risking you'll do it wrong. I'd still take risk over guarantee any day. Right? So... They might do it poorly, but just like the, the atrophied leg, you get better over time. You learn, what's the best way to couch this? What's a good leading question? What's a good introductory statement? What's, what maybe is a better way of saying, I'm afraid that you might go to hell? Like, maybe that's not the best opening line, even though you actually might be afraid they'll go to hell. Maybe that's not what you say. Or if they're Roman Catholic, it's like, do you know it's the Antichrist? Like, We'll get there, but that's not now. No. And maybe, but I'd, still, I'd rather try than not know at all. But we can do better. Okay. While we never want to approach someone with biblical truth in a careless, prayerless manner, we far too often go to the opposite extreme of being so cautious that we never actually sow the seed. It's better to risk failure because of a poor approach than to guarantee failure from making no approach at all. Let's go to some biblical references for this one. Let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And it's just a habit of mine to always look it up in my scripture, even though it's right there in the notes. More times than I'd like to admit, I've gotten the wrong text in the notes, and then people go home and like, oh, it's not the one in here, and I can't find it. I don't, you know, it's because I'm human. I make... Really bad mistakes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, chapter 11, see, there you go, starting with verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. What does that mean? If you spend your whole time like, oh, today's not a good day to sow, look at the cloud, look, oh, I can't really, you end up just not doing it at all, Right? So if you don't sow, you're certainly not going to reap. So if in the sowing part, you're like, uh, you know, it just doesn't, the, the wind isn't good. I'm afraid it'll go wrong. And, it, and you might, it might be high winds, but you have to sow seed at some point. 
He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do, know, as you do not know what is the way of the wind, or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. If you start, it's good to start soil sample, make sure, but at some point you have to sow the seed. And even if all the conditions aren't right, even the wind is blowing, if this is, whatever, just do it. Because you don't know what's going to happen on the other end of that. It might take root and be fantastic. It might be completely disregarded. But the idea is, even if you don't know how it's going to work, just do it. Second Corinthians. The Apostle Paul picks up on the same language. And you see this agricultural language woven into all parts of Scripture. It wasn't just Christ, but it's all through the Bible, this process of evangelism, the cycle of evangelism being referenced. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. But I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap. How? Sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap. Bountifully. Now, he wasn't particularly talking about evangelism per se, but it's an agricultural principle that is easily applied to it. If you don't sow much, you should have no expectation of a large harvest. It's astonishing to me how many churches will expect great things out of their evangelism program when they haven't done any soil prep or seed sowing. We didn't, soil the, we didn't till the soil, we didn't plant any seed, and we're dumbfounded as why there's not a harvest. Really? That's surprising? I have a whole lot of ground that I don't expect corn and tomatoes to come out of because I never tilled it and I never planted seed. And every time I had to go mow the grass, I'm not surprised. Why isn't there corn here? Because I didn't do anything to put it there. Right? And obviously the more you're going to, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later on, but I, I hate to be this crass about it, but at the bottom line, evangelism is a numbers game. You send out a thousand handbills to a program. Do you expect a thousand people to show up? Nope. You know that probably one, two, three of those will show up. So if you want to get a crowd of a hundred new people, you got to sow more seed. You just have to. It's the bottom line. And so Paul's saying here, if you expect bigger outcomes, you have to bigger on the front end. You have to get all these aspects of the cycle to go up. If you're going to have a big end, it has to start and all the way through the middle big. It just has to work that way. Okay. Go back to the book of Isaiah now. Isaiah chapter 32. Verse 20. Blessed are you who sow beside all waters. That's a fun phrase to look up in the writings of Mrs. White too. Beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. I'm not exactly sure what the ox and the donkey have to do with this exactly, but apparently they're part of the going out and doing process too. And blessed are you if you just sow seed. Just go for it. You'll have more success doing more than you would doing less. So simple. Publishing ministry, page 395. From the light which God has given me, he desires that his people shall improve every opportunity for disseminating light. They are to sow beside all waters. Okay, so every opportunity you have, give it a shot. 
And she gives a personal example of this. A couple leave the boat at Samoa. The lady, Mrs. Goward, caught sight of Desire of Ages, and she expressed her admiration of the book. Oh, that's a really good, I don't know if she had read the book herself, or she was interested in it, like the cover, I don't know what about it, but she's like, oh, that's, she had an interest. And you know what Mrs. White didn't do? She's like, oh, that's really nice. Bless you, have a good day. She said, no, 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 here's a little square inch of fertile soil. So what I'm going to do? Sow some seed. But how does she do it? She doesn't say, you should go buy a copy, it's really good. No, what does she do? Watch this. I made her a present of it. That's so nice. It's not just I gave it to her. Like, here, have mine. (laughs) But she made it a thing. Made it a little, little gift. I made her a present of it and gave her the little book, Christian Education. If you like that one, this one's going to knock your socks off. Built on it. She said when she took it up, she could not lay it down. She said she never saw things in print so enlightening and so beneficial. Her husband has been reading Desire of Ages. He says it is a wonderful book. Both seem very thankful for these books. Now they leave Samoa for another island. Well, we mean to sow beside all waters. Some fruit may come of the seed sown. What I like about this story is it doesn't cop out, and then they came to me, confessed their sins, we were baptized right on, no. Mrs. White had no idea how that story ends. Maybe we won't know until heaven. But she said, here's what happened. They saw this book, and I was like, aha, here's an idea. I'm going to gift drive it, and I'm going to give them a little bit more. I think you'd like this, too. And the husband started reading. I don't know how long this boat trip was, but they were enough to they were into the book a little bit. She's like, oh, it's wonderful. And then they got off and left. And she said, we don't know what's going to happen. But it's better to have sown seed than not. Okay? I prayed for the Lord to open the way that I might fund someone interested in the desire of ages, and then came this chance. She was looking for fertile ground, she was asking the Lord for an opportunity to sow seed, and she saw that, oh, I think that book is interesting. Boom, and she was on it. She was ready to go. I like that. Which, by the way, she did more than just admonishing people and writing testimonies and speaking at general conference sessions. She had personal ministry in her own life, too. Every church leader, every conference leader should have Bible studies that they're doing on their own. Just throwing that out there. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, page 35. In the parable of the sower, Christ gave an illustration of his work, his own work, and that of his servants. The seed fell upon all kinds of soil. Some fell upon poor soil, yet the sower did not therefore cease his work. You are to sow the seeds of truth in every place. Wherever you can gain access, hold forth the word of God, sow beside all waters. You may not at once see the results of your labors, but do not be discouraged. Speak the words that Christ gives you. Work in his lines. Go forth everywhere as he did during his ministry on the earth. The world's redeemers had many hearers, but few followers. That's a really powerful line, isn't it? You know, there's a whole lot of people who listened to Jesus who didn't come to faith in God. But that didn't stop him. It's a numbers game. If you want more, you've got to give more. Once the seed has taken root, let's move to the next phase now, cultivation. Once the seed has taken root, the new plant must be cultivated. This nurturing work is by far the most time-consuming and labor-intensive phase of the growing cycle. You think about it. You harvest, depends on the size of your field, but in a day or so. It can be a single event. You can sow in a single event. 
You maybe even till in a single event, but that, how much, you don't till the soil one day, plant the seed the next day, and then go out and get down all the tomatoes the next day. There's this huge long gap in between cultivation. You gotta weed out the little things, you gotta water, you gotta do this and that, and just kind of guide and cut. It's a slow, long, laborious process, and nobody likes doing it. If all, honestly, we would all have gardens if it was this day, this day, mm, by the weekend, it's like Amazon Prime. Two days, you're gonna get it right on time. That'd be great. But that's not what we're looking at. And in our local churches and our personal lives, that's how it is with winning souls. There's a lot of like, all right, we need to schedule our next Bible study. We need to do the next one. And let's look at our calendar. And man, we just covered this. You still have questions. We've got to go over this thing again. Oh, anyway. <sighs> I thought this was easy. I want a 30-minute promo video you know, moment where it all happens like a sitcom. It doesn't work that way. There's long, slow opening Daniel 2, and then doing it again, Bible study work that needs to be done when you're sowing the seed. Cultivation. The primary, okay, where soil preparation and seed sowing may take a day or two, cultivation requires continued effort over weeks or months. The primary way to nurture the growth of the word in someone's heart is by giving regular Bible studies. Okay? Okay. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 talks about how this is the thing that causes growth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. What causes growth in someone who's just coming to the gospel? The word of God. They got to get in the word. At some point, they're not just interested in it, but they got to study it for themselves. And personal Bible studies is the most effective way to do that. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus gives the Great Commission. Again, hopefully we're very familiar with this. But I want to highlight something that we sometimes skip by. In verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. I love that. He's like, I have been given all power. So you go and do something. I thought you were the one who had the power. (laughs) No, no, no. I have power to tell you what to do. All authority has been given. Could Christ go? Sure. Just in the way he could have moved the stone, he could have unwrapped Lazarus, but he says, now, I am victorious over Satan, I have defeated him at the cross, he's a uh, defeated foe, now the the field is open to you. Now go and make disciples. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. Notice in this making disciples, this great commission that Christ tells us to do, that teaching them all things is involved. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who understands who he is from a study of his word. That's it. And so, yeah, they might be interested in the seed sown, but you've got to take some time and go through them. Maybe it won't take as long for other people, but... Having people understand who Christ is and what the present truth for this time is directly from the word of God is the only thing that's really going to grow them strong. If you get them attached to an individual, even just a good preacher or something like that, as soon as that guy flames out, so are they. They need to have root in themselves in the word of God. That's what causes growth, according to scripture. Uh, you Think about this. 
when Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus, there were the two disciples who were discouraged, you know, and Jesus does that whole, which this is a really interesting study, he, he doesn't just show up and, hi, I'm Jesus, what's wrong? No. He looks like just another guy walking along the road. He says, what are you guys talking about? Oh, are you the only one not in Jerusalem? How do you not know that this guy was, we totally had our hopes set up, and now, and the worst, it's been three days, and he said he was going to come back in three days. We haven't seen him. We're headed home. And, it was, and then Jesus starts doing what? He doesn't say, look, man, I'm Jesus. He stays incognito, and he takes him to the Bible. He said, well, didn't the scripture say? And on that long walk, which I'm not mistaken, was about seven miles long, Desire of Ages, I think, tells us about that, he does a Bible study. Well, it seems like this prophecy had to fit. And when Jesus finally did reveal himself in the breaking of the bread at their home that night, which I like to imagine what that would have been like, you know, they still don't know he's Jesus. And then he, like, hands out the bread. <laughs> and they're like, oh, did you see? And in that moment, maybe he gives a little smile like, <laughs> boom, he disappears. But what did they say to each other? Did not our hearts burn within us when? When we saw his hand? No. When he stoked with us, by the way, he was giving the Bible study. It's like, wasn't it powerful that Bi They were rooted, not because of their personal experience having seen them, but because they now understood the Bible. That understanding of the truth from God's word is the most powerful thing that God has given us. There's a reason he gave us a book. Acts chapter 8. Let's look at another example of this. Starting with verse 30, the experience of Philip and the Ethiopian. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? So it's not just to have an individual studying the Bible on his own. They need guidance. How do I help them understand what they're reading? Right? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? I think there are plenty of people in, this, in the Seventh Avenue, uh, uh, I'm sorry, within the influence of Seventh Avenue, but in the North American field, who are Christian in name. They're not offended by the name of Jesus. They have Bibles on their shelves. They might have nine different television channels, but they still don't understand what they're seeing. How can they unless somebody comes and helps them walk through it? This means this. means that you don't just give somebody a math book, say, oh, figure it out. And that would, that would make school a very different experience. In every class, they just like, figure it out. No, they open it and walk with you through it and help you step by step understand it. This is what happened here. It goes on. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. And it's a quote from Isaiah about, uh, from 53 about Jesus, right? So the eunuch in verse 34 asked, answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to them. Clearly, he didn't just stop with that scripture. Let's start where you are and then let's build. Let's build. Let's build. There's a great technique right there. Start with the things that they're already okay with and then build into the things they don't know yet. Now, as they went down the road, they came to see water, some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Notice that this man realized that he was not confident enough. He was not competent enough in his understanding of Christ, or his understanding of God, to be baptized. He needed to understand first, which led to baptism. 
before anyone becomes a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you can do all the interesting ministries you want, all the fun health things, and I love those. But at some point, somebody has to walk through the Bible with them. Nine times out of ten in our church, it's the public evangelist doing it from up front. And there's nothing wrong with that, but those are supposed to be reaping events not cultivating and seed sowing and so on. We try to do all the whole cycle of evangelism in a three-week period in the fall. The best results for a harvest you're going to have if that's, the soil has been cultivated well, the seed has been sown at the right time, and hopefully the best way possible, and the cultivation process has gone on. So when the harvest comes, he's just repeating stuff they've already heard. He's confirming that in them, and they're like, now I'm definite, I'm confident in my decision. Here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? It's all part of the process. Anyway, let's see here. Evangelism, page 338. It is not preaching alone that must be done. Far less preaching is needed. More time should be devoted to patiently educating others, giving the hearers opportunity to express themselves. That's another downfall of public campaigns, which I do. I've got three public campaigns that I'm going to be preaching next year alone. I'm a big fan of public campaigns, but there are some difficulties to them. One is they're not great for, do you have a question? (laughs) It's not really a good dynamic for that. But a one-on-one Bible study, they'll talk. They'll they'll flesh out the concerns, right? They'll talk about the objections. And this is what's needed. Giving the hearers opportunity to express themselves. It is instruction that many need, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. That's what we need. And that's inside the book Evangelism. (laughs) Testimonies to the Church, Volume 9, 196. In visions of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people. We've heard a lot about revival and reformation, yes? I'm over my time, aren't I? Oh, I'm really sorry about that. Okay, we'll go fast. We've heard a lot about revival and reformation. How How would we know if it actually occurred? What does the great reform look like that we're praying so fervently for? Personal devotions is good, but watch this now. In visions of the night, representations passed before me of a great reformatory movement among God's people. Many were praising God. The sick were healed and other miracles were wrought. A spirit of intercession was seen, even as was manifested before the great day of Pentecost. Hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families and opening before them the word of God. It's a really cool picture. Anyway, Let's just really quickly go through this last part. Crops never harvest themselves. <laughs> Let's say you've got a, somebody ripe for the, for the picking, and nobody goes and plucks them up. They will sit there and wither and die on the vine. I can't tell you how many people have been baptized, and they're like, well, just nobody ever asked me. Really? You've been waiting this whole? Yeah, I just, I've been sitting here. <sighs> Sorry. Just, would you like to get baptized? make an appeal. Personal appeals. Appeals don't have to be from the front with a thousand people around you. You can be right at the kitchen table. Sister, brother, I I see that this is really... Do you want to commit to what you're learning here? Do you want to make a covenant with God? It seems the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. If they're there, they're going to be like, yes. Yes, I want that. I didn't know this, but thank you for offering. That's what I want. Anyway, we'll just go through these uh, 
so uh, let's go to, let's skip down to welfare ministry. Personal, individual effort and interest for your friends and neighbors will accomplish more than can be estimated. It is for the want of this kind of labor that souls for whom Christ died are perishing. Your work may accomplish more real good than the more extensive meetings if they lack in personal effort. When both are combined with the blessing of God, a more perfect and thorough work may be brought. But if we can have but one part done, let it be the individual labor of opening the scriptures in households, making personal appeals, and talking familiarly with the, family of the, with the members of the family, not about things of little importance, but of the great themes of redemption. Review and Herald, April 24, 1883. The salvation of sinners requires earnest personal labor. We are to bear to them the word of life, not to wait for them to come to us. You know, that's one of the other problems with evangelism. The whole campaign has to be taken place in one room. But what if there's people out there who don't come to your sanctuary? Are you going to go to their home? We need to take the evangelism we're doing and take it out to the people where they are. Anyway, finally, preservation. Once the crop has been harvested, the grain must be reserved as a blessing to the church and a worker for the salvation of other souls. When the evangelism cycle comes first circle, it accomplishes its purpose of making disciples who make other disciples. Now, the baptism occurs at the end of the harvest, right? That's where the commitment is made, and they fulfill that commitment by being baptized and becoming a member of the church. But now what? Now you have to do, and have you ever noticed that we put so much effort into winning new souls? We'll spend thousands and thousands of dollars. We'll spend time and energy and effort to sow the seed and do all the different things. And we think that the finish line is harvest. Next Sabbath, all the banners are down. All the crowds have gone away. They've heard one presentation on the Sabbath in their life. And we're like, man, we need to close the back door. The, the new people just keep leaving. They just, they, they're new. They don't know. They're babies. They need to be built up afterwards. This is a whole discipleship process that needs to happen after the campaign closes, right? Anyway, uh, we must not be satisfied with mere retention of new members. Replication is the ultimate goal, to make another disciple making disciple. The Seventh Adventist Church has plenty of members. What we need are missionaries. This DNA of soul winning must be implanted at the earliest ages of these new disciples' life or they're going to become the church members who have never been a missionary in their life. Christian Service, page 9. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a missionary. He who drinks of the living water becomes a fountain of life. The receiver becomes a giver. Review and Herald, December 3, 1908. It is an eternal law of Jehovah that he who accepts the truth is to make it his first work to proclaim the truth. But who is it that makes the burden of perishing sinners his own? Among God's people today, there is a fearful lack of sympathy that should be felt for souls unsaved. We talk of Christian missions. The sound of our voice is heard, but do we feel Christ's tender heart longing for those outside the fold? We have to take that, because the minute they come into the truth, they're going to be looking for other people. We have to give them a structure. We have to give them a discipleship process. So finally, again, uh, it's not uncommon for Christians to express disappointment at meager results to, from their efforts to win souls. Oftentimes, however, the problem lies, not in, uh, lies in not realizing that the growing cycle is a process involving multiple steps, each of which demands careful planning and hard work. There are no shortcuts when it comes to winning souls for Christ. If even one step in the evangelism cycle is overlooked, results will suffer. Now, that's not to say if you don't plant the seed, right, there'll be no harvest. No, it just won't be as verbose as you would like it to be. 
We must prepare the soil of the heart, plant the seed of the word of God, cultivate spiritual interest with ongoing Bible studies, harvest decisions to follow Christ, and preserve those decisions through systematic discipleship. Yet even our best efforts will fail without the power only God can provide. Of course, it is God who gives the increase. Yes? You can do all the steps right, but all you're doing is the human part, but the miracle, you can move the stone, you can unwrap the, the miracle of raising Lazarus, that's only on Jesus. And the conversion of souls... We are responsible for the conversation, but God is responsible for the conversion, right? So we have to do our part, and the Lord has promised to be faithful that through our efforts, souls will be one. I just want to work the most efficiently and effectively for him. I apologize for going over the time. We'll have a short word of prayer, take a break, and we'll be right back for the next one, okay? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can be here together. Please bless our time together. Please help us to redeem the time and make it effective uh, for you and your cause. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.